All right. Okay. Thank you for tuning in to this entry in the Hagley History Hangout series. Today, I'm interviewing uh, Dr. Benjamin Schwantes, a managing editor for an academic publication at Johns Hopkins University, on his recent book, The Train in the Telegraph, A Revisionist History. And his book recently won the Economic History Association's Alice Hansen Jones Biannual Prize for an Outstanding Book on North American Economic History. Uh, did I miss anything? No, nope, that sounds great. All right. So uh, to get us kicked off, can you give us a walkthrough of your book and some of your main arguments that you make? Certainly. Uh, the book itself, as the title very clearly shows, focuses on the relationship between the railroad and the telegraph industry, primarily in 19th century um, United States. And my main argument in the book is that this relationship between these two industries and you know, we could talk about an economic relationship, a political relationship, a social relationship is far more complicated than previous generations of historians have recognized. And so what I really do in the book is I deconstruct how the relationship between these industries gradually comes about over the course of about two decades, beginning in the mid 1840s with the first uh, American telegraph lines and really only post-Civil War does the, um, the railroad industry sort of begin to widely acknowledge the, that the telegraph might offer the railroad industry um, advantages over their previous means of communication, which were just entirely uh, time and rule book based. And then I trace the story into the very beginning of the 20th century by looking at how the telegraph does become more uh, ingrained within the railroad industry as a, as a management tool, as a tool for managing railroad movements and for communicating, doing business communication. But by the first decade of the 20th century, you have efforts made uh, by progressives in, uh, in Congress, uh, and really initiated by Theodore Roosevelt and then working with progressives in Congress to implement safety regulations and limit hours of service for railroad employees in order to improve railroad safety. And the result of that is that in the case of telegraphers, the hours that telegraphers can work for railroads are capped. And this forces the railroad industry to either essentially double their workforce of telegraphers, which is impossible for them to do uh, for various reasons I get into in the book project, or to look at a new um, means of dealing with the, you know, using the something other than the telegraph to manage railroad operations. And ultimately in a very short time period, they turned to the telephone. And within about a year after this law goes into effect in 1908, uh, the railroad industry has already shifted a significant amount of their railroad management, their train dispatching and other, and other necessary services onto tel telephone lines and they've largely set aside the telegraph. So it's a sort of story of just at the moment when the telegraph really does truly become a critical essential tool for the industry. The industry just jettisons, at least the major players in the industry just jettison it uh, in favor of a new means of communication in order to deal with uh, compliance with law, you know, federal law that had gone into effect. So it sort of traces, I'd say, the rise and in some places decline of, of the relationship uh, between these industries. Yes, it seems like the Telegraph had a relatively short-lived heyday. Uh, uh, it definitely did. Uh, certainly, it's it's this object of you know mistrust and concern within the railroad industry, really into the decade of the 1880s. In some cases, you were a few 
kind of recalcitrant managers who are even in the 1890s are still sort of um, describing the telegraph as a, as a necessary evil within the railroad industry. And then, yeah, by, by the kind of the late part of, of the uh, first decade of the 20th century, it's already on its way out in terms of being a critical tool for dispatching. I mean, the telegraph remains part of the industry well up into um, probably the post-World War II era. You still have people who are in the industry uh, in the 1960s and 70s where learning Morse code is sort of a prerequisite of being uh, a manager in the, in, in the railroad industry, but as entirely a backup tool. You know, nobody is nobody's depending on the telegraph um, for, you know, for overseeing railroad operations. Everything moves to the telephone and then eventually to uh, radio in the, in the 20th century, later in the 20th century uh, for dealing with those sorts of uh, necessary managerial activities. So it seems like by the end, it almost occupied the same position that the fax machine does today. <laughs> in some ways, yes, very much so. Sort of there, but yes, exactly. But you know, we only use it when we have to, basically. So something that I was really curious about, given that you contrast the American development of the telegraph with the relatively more harmonious development of the telegraph and the railroad in the UK, what, what do you think bred that sort of fear and mistrust here that seemingly didn't exist abroad? I think one of the key factors is that in, um, in the United Kingdom, you have the, you know, the two foremost telegraph pioneers, um, Charles Wheatstone and William F. Cook, and they practically, from the moment they start working on their invention, they are looking for seed capital and they're looking for ways that they can test it. And they reach out to the British railroad industry almost immediately, um, very quickly after they start working on this project. Initially, they're working independently and then they start working together. Um, and so they uh, very from the almost day one, I shouldn't say from day one, but for very soon within the development cycle of their telegraph system, they are looking for the railroad as a source of capital to develop the invention and also as a, as a customer essentially for their, uh, for their product. So they're looking at a lot of the early railroads of the era, the, the Great Western Railroad in um, Great Britain, uh, the um, Manchester and Birmingham, and some of these other early railroad lines. And it helps because, at least in the case of the United Kingdom, these railroads have money and they are actually interested in, in dealing with um, some of these problems that they're facing in terms of managing train operations because they recognize that trains are the fastest means of transportation of the era and nothing goes faster than the train. Um, so if you have problems with train derailments or traffic jams on the line, you need some means that's faster than the railroad in order to keep on top of that and ultimately resolve those issues. So in the United Kingdom case, then the, the telegraph pioneers are working with the railroad industry very early on. In the United States, it's a very different situation, and partly just because American railroads didn't have the kind of money that British railroads did. American railroads were uh, much, much, cash, much more cash poor in the 1830s and 1840s when uh, Samuel Morse is beginning to work on his telegraph. Uh, and it also helps that Morse has zero interest in the railroad industry. Um, he's, he doesn't see the railroad as being a customer for this product he's developing. He's really focused on trying to sell it to the US government as a, as a supplement to the US mail system. And so he, the fact that the first American uh, long distance telegraph line is along a railroad route is just, just pure coincidence. It just in the case of Morse, the B&O line connecting Baltimore and Washington, D.C. just happened to go where he needed to go. It happened to provide a, a, a convenient route between these two cities that was clear of 
obstacles and also under the control of one company. So he, he didn't have to deal with you know, hundreds of different landowners to get permission to string this telegraph line from Baltimore down to, uh, to DC uh, to do his first test of, of a telegraph system. So it really is, it's a different story because you have these sort of different motivations between the, the developers of the telegraph technology in, in the two different countries. Interesting. I'm kind of wondering now if there was any sort of uh, a personal interplay that led to some of these early business decisions. Like, you know, did any early railroad executives feel in a way snubbed by Morse? Uh, for not seeing them as being the top user of the new thing? Is... Um, I would say yeah, there are certainly, there are certainly cases, um, especially early on where uh, the, where it's not, not so much Morse. Morse is really just, he's, he, once he uh, sort of obtains this congressional funding to build this experimental line and then accomplishes that goal, he kind of checks out of the business and he lets others essentially manage the operation. And most significant of those being uh, Amos Kendall, who was a former postmaster general under Andrew Jackson, and then had come in and offered his services to Morris basically as his agent to sell the telegraph and essentially take a share of the, of the profits from licensing and uh, construction of, of these telegraph lines. And Kendall has some really difficult dealings with, uh, in the case of the, uh, New Jersey, the New Jersey Central Railroad and the Camden Amboy Railroad, which are both under the same ownership in New Jersey, because he was trying to build a line going from, uh, going basically north from Baltimore. Uh, he was actually starting in uh, Philadelphia and going from Philadelphia to New York City and the, by necessity needed to run through central New Jersey in order to connect those two points. And he has an incredibly difficult time um, with the railroad company who basically controlled the, the major right of way between those two cities and ultimately is unsuccessful in convincing the railroad to allow him to build a telegraph line along their right of way. And he attributes this to ignorance on the part of the railroad company and complains about, you know, how these railroad officials think they know everything and they, they don't know anything about you know, the telegraph and the telegraph is not this potentially dangerous thing, um, doesn't represent danger to the railroad. And so he complains quite a bit about it. And I, I think in the book, I go, I said, there's, there's probably a little bit more going on. It didn't help the fact that the, when he had been postmaster general, he had tried to implement an express mail service and the, um, the New Jersey railroad companies had not been particularly um, good about uh, facilitating express mail service and had received numerous fines while he was postmaster general. So there was already bad blood between between these individuals, but well before he approached them to try to convince them to allow him to put a telegraph line along their right of way. Uh, but you see this elsewhere where you have uh, in New England, for instance, you have one of the other early Morse uh, partners um, building telegraph lines. And initially the railroads are a bit more open to it than they are in, um, in some of the other parts of the East Coast. But he built these lines and they're, they're not built well. They're, they're really cheaply constructed and they start falling down in storms and injuring and killing train crews, essentially falling on in front of trains and knocking uh, brakemen off the top of trains who they're up on top operating the brakes in these old, these early trains. And it, it almost immediately it generates all this bad blood amongst the railroad industry about, you know, the telegraph lines running along their right-of-ways. And in some cases they start threatening to chop all these lines down because they see them as a potential threat to uh, the railroad operations. And that sort of kind of engenders some bad blood amongst railroad officials in New England that really persists well into the, the post-Civil War period. Yeah, that was one thing that 
uh, repeatedly left me scratching my head is that this early period seems to just be such a perfect storm of of just poor happenstance continuing to happen over and over and over again because at least of course we have the benefit of hindsight but this seems like something that should be obviously beneficial you would think so and that's certainly what surprised me when i when i when i sort of started looking at this project when i was in graduate school is i had read kind of you know the major works of of business on the topic like alfred chandler and others who had just talked about you know how these you know these relationships between railroads and, and telegraph companies were so um, so beneficial to both parties. And as I started actually looking into corporate records at uh, Hagley Library and other places, you, you see so much more uh, doubt and concern being raised by railroad officials about these offers from uh, telegraph entrepreneurs to allow them to put uh, telegraph lines along their right-of-ways. Uh, and you, yeah, you exactly, you'd say, well, you know, wouldn't this be a benefit to the railroads? And I think a lot of it came down to, and I certainly talk about this in the book, a lot of it comes down to, you know, the American railroad industry had spent well over a decade sort of formulating and then really perfecting a, you know, a system of operation that was based on time and, and rule books. And so they had this system that, you know, had been developed through, you know, through sort of blood, sweat and tears and accidents and, and other things that allowed them to operate relatively efficiently, basically using, you know, using rule books and using, uh, using clocks and watches in order to maintain uh, effective time management on the railroad. And so they didn't necessarily see a need for some new um, technical product that they were not familiar with um, to supplement this system. And partly because the railroads of the era were not long enough that um, it was impossible to provide other means to uh, communicate. I mean, you had the, oh, the backup option was always putting somebody on a horse and just having them run along the tracks and, and um, deliver messages to train crews who might be stuck in traffic or something like that. So for American, you know, for American rail lines of the 1840s and kind of the early 1850s, they just don't see the need. They feel like they already have an effective system and they don't really need this new, uh, this new communications uh, technology to potentially come in and replace the sort of the system that they had been operating under. And it's really only um, in the mid 1850s when you start seeing the first of the, uh, the Trans-Appalachian Railroad lines uh, running first from New York City over um, to kind of the Western, Western New York and then from Philadelphia over to uh, Pittsburgh and then eventually from Baltimore over to um, Wheeling, uh, now West Virginia at the time, Virginia these lines that become long enough that it, this system of rule, rule and time-based management starts to break down a little bit. And those are the first lines that are initially sort of be receptive to this idea of, of the telegraph as a, initially as a supplement to the, the existing system and then later as more of the intensive actual tool for railroad management. And it seems like shortly thereafter that period in the 1850s, another really massive sea change happens, which is the Civil War. Well, exactly. And the Civil War is very much, a, I think, a sea change moment, um, both for those who participate in military railroad activities and those who, are, who stay in the sort of the civilian railroading. And I look at the, the course of, of the war through kind of through both lenses, um, looking at this uh, federally uh, established military railroad system that the, that the, the union had, had created to basically manage 
railroads and territories that uh, were you know, liberated from Confederate uh, control, essentially, and had been staffed primarily, at least in the first year of the war, with officials uh, from the Pennsylvania Railroad. And they came in and sort of got the trains running again, essentially. Uh, but they were also, because they were from the Pennsylvania and they did have some experience with um, telegraphy, they also um, you know, helped to rebuild telegraph lines and, and used uh, started to use the telegraph lines as a, as a means of supplementing essentially the standard operating practices on these military railroads. Um, so that's important, but then of course that changes over the course of the war, this early kind of first cohort of managers, some of them just wear themselves out and die. Some of them uh, like Andrew Carnegie get tired of it and go back to, um, go back to managing uh, the Pennsylvania Railroad. And they're replaced with other officials who have different ideas about the relationship between railroads and, and the telegraph. And by mid-1862, the federal military telegraph system had been put under entirely different administration from the federal railroads. And so they're separated out and no longer sort of working together as they had been in the early days of the war. And on the civilian side of things, um, you have a massive increase in traffic on the major civilian railroads of, of the era, especially these, these trans-Appalachian roads like the BNO and um, the New York Central and the uh, Pennsylvania Railroad. And they're just so overwhelmed with all this military traffic that by default, they start depending more on the telegraph uh, to help deal with traffic jams and accidents and things like that. Um, so it really does convinced this generation of managers who had been involved both on the military side of things and on the civilian side of things that the telegraph really is an important tool for railroad operations and we need to do more to, um, to utilize it in going into the post-war era. But then after the war, it seemed that a lot of railroads persisted to operate rather than devising new rules, almost as if they kept on with the same sort of ad hoc system that they had to build to deal with a, a crisis rather than really figuring out something new that might've perhaps been more beneficial than what they already had. Well, that's exactly right. And you have emerging what's called the American system of, of train dispatching or the American system of dispatching, which is largely, which just as you said, is sort of all the rules and regulations that had been developed really in the pre-telegraph era with a few pages kind of appended onto their rule books about, well, if those systems don't work, here's, here's how you use the telegraph to deal with those problems. And the telegraph is seen as sort of a supplement rather than a primary means for dealing with train dispatching and, and overall railroad management. And so that era of the sort of post-Civil War period really throughout the 1870s is very much this era where everyone is just sort of doing it very ad hoc. And some of the more progressive railroads like the Atlantic like Pennsylvania, they actually take the time to really sit down and devise rules and regulations for using the telegraph that are, you know, that are, are very progressive and that actually are ahead of their, you know, let's say ahead of the majority of other railroads, but that's because they're actually drawing on the experiences of superintendents who have experience using the telegraph, in many of the cases who have been telegraphers or dispatchers and have risen through the ranks. And so you have a few of these railroads who are very progressive and they're pushing this very progressive idea about the telegraph should not be a supplement, the telegraph should be the main tool for managing railroad operations. And we should you know, go back to the rule books and, and our stopwatch or our watches if the telegraph doesn't work, not the other way around. Um, but there's still a great deal of resistance. A lot of railroads just do not want to move that quickly and sort of and change how the you know change their sort of traditional 
means of operation uh, to bring the telegraph in in a more meaningful way. Yeah, I oh, I do not have in my question what page it was on in your book, but there you uh, discussed about some of these railroads having concerns about what the telegraph could do with their upsetting their hierarchy within their management. And that struck me as, uh, again, hindsight, a very odd notion because uh, you know technology can be utilized to reinforce and re-entrench a hierarchy. You're, you're right. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting to see that play out. And I think part of it is that the, the railroad hierarchy largely was you know, inspired by military, the earliest you know, people who are sort of theorists of railroad management and railroad uh, hierarchy were really coming out of the Army Corps of Engineers and other, other military um, branches in the 1830s and 1840s. And so railroads are extremely hierarchical in terms of their, their structures. And partly because it was felt that that was necessary. If everybody you know, followed the rules, then the, theoretically the trains would all operate on time, but they recognized that there would be problems and you would need people to make decisions. And they only wanted to empower the people at the highest levels to make decisions affecting the you know, movement of trains on rail lines. And so for the longest period, it was only um, divisional superintendents who had the authority to change the schedule or to say, you know, train one is delayed allow train two to pass train one or allow train two to do something else in violation of the of the schedule and the rule book. Uh, and so the idea would be if there was an accident, you would know exactly who to blame for that accident. And there would be a paper trail because all this had to be documented. And you had a fear among some uh, railroad officials uh, as the telegraph comes in that it's going to break down that hierarchy in two ways because you'll be empowering employees at a much lower level at the level of a telegrapher or a, or a train dispatcher to make decisions that, that in their mind should only be made by people at a much higher level. And in the case of the telegraph, there was always this fear that you wouldn't have a paper trail. Um, early telegraphs had paper tickers essentially that, that, you know, used the, that would record all of the, you know, the dots and dashes, uh, the messages coming along. But that had been in some ways discarded by most telegraphers by the 1860s and they were just using their ears and you know, essentially just writing messages down as they came in uh, rather than uh, having some sort of paper trail. And so the fear was that the telegrapher would mishear something, would write something down wrong, and then that message that that message that had an error in it would lead to a train accident, and then nobody would know who to blame because there's no no precise paper trail. And so uh, that was a real concern. And of course, some railroads had figured out that there were very easy ways. You know, you had um, dispatching orders. You just wrote in the information on the form in duplicate or triplicate, and you would have copies of all of these messages. So if there was an accident, you could go back to the paper trail and and figure this out. But that was again only the sort of most progressive railroads were willing to sort of to experiment with that, and the majority of railroads just were very concerned about the disruptive influence of of telegraphic communications, and especially those who were necessary, the telegraphers and the dispatchers, those who were necessary for those communications, and how they might be a really disruptive influence on the sort of traditional hierarchy. Right. I'm glad that you talked about the idea of blame and sort of passing blame for accidents and mishaps down the ladder because that is a perfect opening for my probably most off the wall question of this interview <laughs> which as i was reading your book and you you talked about this sort of like downward shifting of blame should anything go wrong uh that immediately and 
I understand making uh, parallels to modern times can be perilous, but that immediately put me in mind of the way a lot of gig economy jobs work, where you know Uber, see, Uber for instance, seems willing to deal with uh, individual drivers if they get enough negative reports or, mm-hmm. or bad feedback, but uh, not particularly invested in changing things up top. And I'm wondering if there could be any parallels there and feel free to tell me if you think i'm barking up the wrong tree (laughs) i think i think it's a good point i actually think there are some parallels and then certainly um telegraphers are you know they're they're the low i'd say the low man on the total board there are a few female telegraphers and and who are scattered through the industry um by this war so i will say they're the low person on the totem pole within the railroad industry and they're sort of you know, they get, they get hired, they get fired, or in many cases, many of them just quit um, within a few months because most of the jobs that are available, especially we're talking the post-Civil War period, there are a lot of little stations in the middle of nowhere where you need a telegrapher at least part of the day. And so railroads are always looking to hire people for these jobs because the average telegrapher, I forget the exact number, but they have, I think, the second shortest um, period of employment within the railroad industry, shorter only to brakemen, which was a truly hazardous uh group of, you know, category of work and telegrapher, the average telegrapher, I think is only about three months on the job and then they would quit and go someplace else. So you have kind of like the gig, like you're saying, the gig workers and for like an Uber or some other service, you have these telegraphers constantly looking for better options uh, to either to just find better places to work or to make more money. And so there's this constant churn within the railroad uh, telegraph industry or telegraph community, I should say, of these telegraphers. They call them the boomer telegraphers. They stick around for a few months, they get bored, they just quit and leave and go someplace else and this constant churn. So you have amongst the um, amongst management, this this definite concern about you know, not having you know, employee retention, but you know, there's, there, there's, there's a certain lack of, you know, of being willing to say, well, why are employees not wanting to stick around? Well, we're not paying them very much. We're making them work in the middle of these extremely remote locations where their only contact might be the trains that come by a couple times a day. You know, well, these are not particularly good, good jobs. And you know, there's, you know, there's reasons why these uh, telegraphers don't want to stick around. Um, so yeah, I think there's, there's definitely some parallels because there's a, there's a real failure on the part of railroad management to and understand their workforce and to recognize the motivations of the workforce and to potentially shell out a little bit more money in order to actually retain employees who are very skilled employees, learning, learning Morse code and mastering all the arcane details of being a, uh, being a telegrapher and especially being a railroad telegrapher. Um, you know, these are, these are skilled positions, but the railroad industry just sort of, in some ways, is kind of blind to you know, the fact that these are skilled employees and frankly, they should be treated better than you know, your baseline um, unskilled employee working for the rail industry. Right. So as we sort of move into the final phase of the time period covered in your book, uh, do more women come into that workforce toward the end there? Uh, a few. It's it's never a a, a really significant amount. Um, I believe there are more women in the commercial telegraph industry, for instance, for instance, like Western Union, um, than there are within the railroad industry. Um, there are there are um, there's a uh, I believe it's Tom Jepson, who's an author, wrote a really good book on female telegraphers, and so that he does you know he does draw out some stories of women working in in as um, telegraph uh, telegraphers in especially in like remote stations where they just could not find anybody else. 
to work. Um, so oftentimes, I think it was perceived that if you could, if you, you know, you're, you're struggling to find anybody to, to be a telegrapher in one of these remote locations in the American Southwest, for instance, if you can find a woman, ideally with a family or something, maybe they'll actually settle down there and, you know, she's not just going to quit in two months and go someplace else. So there are a few women who are in the railroad industry as telegraphers, but it's, yeah, it's a very small, small minority really throughout the 19th and into the 20th century. So I guess, um, oh boy, I'm so sorry. I can't read my own handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of mark the Hours of Service Act as the beginning of the end. Mm -hmm. uh, can you say something more about that? Sure. Yeah, the, the uh, I believe 1907 is when it's passed and it goes into effect uh, 1908, I believe, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. And it really is this turning point, much like the Civil War had been. And there, you know, there are a few other of these really critical turning points in the rail industry, certainly the Civil War and, um, and the Hours of Service Act being, being two of those. Uh, you have this, as I had said a little while ago, this real this strong push amongst uh, progressive reformers in government, um, starting with Theodore Roosevelt and then going into Robert La Follette and others, others of, of sort of that progressive Republican period of, of the early part of the 20th century. And this really growing concern about railroad safety. Um, you had a number of really devastating accidents that had happened periodically throughout kind of the second half of the 19th century. And there's this just generally growing concern that America's railroads are not safe, that American, um, you know, Americans traveling on their railroads are putting themselves at risk. And sort of, and you know, by, you know, in, in addition to that, of course, that railroad employees themselves are at risk and being, you know, be at risk of injury and death um, because of because of you know, how they're being forced to work by these powerful companies. And so there's this push to implement new safety regulations um, in around 1904, 1905. And one of these is to cap the number of hours that railroad employees can work in a 24 hour period. And essentially they had been, railroads could say, you know, you work 18 hours, you know, seven days a week or six days a week, you know, six and a half days a week would be often the rule, you know, you work, you know, you work these long hours and you need to work a double shift, so be it. And there was the fear that you have a lot of tired railroad employees who are prone to make errors. And especially in the case of telegraphers and train dispatchers, if they make a mistake, it could have very serious consequences in terms of train accidents that could potentially injure or kill hundreds of people. So there's this growing interest in limiting the number of hours that uh, telegraphers and train dispatchers are, are able to work in a 24 hour period. And for about a year and a half, this goes um, through the, the House and the Senate and there are various revisions made and eventually the rule is that they cap it at 12 hours. You have to, you can only work 12 hours in a 24 hour period and they make a few little exceptions, but by and large, they say you can't overwork, you know, 12 hours, you know, is the maximum. You can't overwork these employees by having them work these, these grueling, grueling shifts. And the impact on the rail industry is that uh, the industry had been trying very hard to, um, to essentially keep the telegraph workforce in check as best they could. Um, the telegraphers had begun uh, unionizing and that had slowly started to have an impact on the industry. But the rail industry in general had been you know, trying to very hard to, to keep the, you know, keep telegraphers as powerless as they possibly could. Uh, and the passage of the 19 of the Hours of Service Act really empowers telegraphers because it says, you know, you have to, you know, you have to only work them a certain amount of time and for a very busy station, that would mean you would need two telegraphers to manage that station instead of potentially just one telegrapher. 
which meant effectively doubling your workforce in some cases. And there just simply weren't enough telegraphers out there to staff uh, all these stations at the rate that the Hours of Service Act said that they had to be staffed. And so it puts the railroads in a really, really tight position because they can either try to go out and encourage you know, more people to learn telegraphy. And that, that is something that some railroads attempt to do by setting up telegraph schools or uh, working with existing telegraph schools. Or the alternate being you can figure out some other means of communication that would allow people who are not skilled in Morse telegraphy, perhaps just railroad employees who might be have been injured on the job and you're still trying to keep them on the books in some capacity, allow people other than these highly skilled telegraphers to send message, send and receive messages and to, uh, to essentially dispatch trains. And so this is when you have a number of the railroad officials that by this point, most of the railroads had a, um, a superintendent of the telegraph or somebody who is in some kind of capacity to deal with their uh, telegraph infrastructure. And you have these superintendents of the telegraph looking at the telephone as a sort of as, as a solution, as a technological fix essentially to this problem of suddenly being very short staffed. And the, the consequences of the law were that if you, know, you were short staffed and you worked your employees beyond a certain point, you could be liable for fines and various fees. So there was a very strong financial incentive to solve this problem, even if it meant spending some more money uh, in the short term to, uh, to solve the problem in the long term. And so that's when you see this very strong push toward bringing the telephone in uh, as, a, as a means of supplementing and then largely replacing the telegraph in the sort of frontline service in terms of dispatching trains and and sitting receiving messages and things like that. So is it that at the time that the telephone is really a superior technological fix or is it a technological fix that also happens to be non-regulated and non-union? I think the latter is, is far more far more important. The telegraph the telephone actually they they complain the quality of the quality of many of these telephone lines is not very good and, and they are you know they they are they're definitely an inferior communications technology initially to the existing telegraph system, but exactly, you can use a non-unionized workforce, you can, um, you can find jobs for people in the industry when they get perhaps too old to work on the trains anymore, they get injured on the job, you can always just say, hey, you want to be a, you know, you want to be a dispatcher instead, you can, you can learn basic, you know, basic skills, you need to do that, and you have a telephone, so you don't need to learn Morse code, which is the major impediment to people taking these jobs. And so for the railroad industry, it's great. And it's funny because a lot of the, the objections that had been initially raised to the telegraph are initially raised to the telephone as well. This idea, oh, there's no paper trail. You know, we don't, you know, we don't know who to blame if there's an accident. And you, you start to see people coming along and saying, well, you know, there's no paper trail on the telegraph and we solved that problem. Why can't we just apply the same solution to the telephone and just start keeping notepads with the orders in, in triplicate or in duplicate? And then we have copies of all these all these communications. So we know, you know, who to go back to and get and blame if there's if there are any problems. And so it's it's sort of this, you know, this paradigm shift and suddenly the eyes of many of these railroad officials are open and they're like, oh, this makes a lot of sense. We absolutely could use the telephone. There's why why aren't we using the telephone? And you see this in in the uh, trade publications, especially this just incredible enthusiasm that amongst railroad officials for the telephone in about a year or so after the um, the hours of service act begins to go into effect in 1908. There's this massive shift and you have very within that one year period you have a number of the major uh, U.S. railroads uh, that I examined 
replacing um, the telegraph with the telephone on a lot of their main lines. Um, so it's this very rapid push um, to substitute the telephone uh, for the telegraph lines because they see it as having this huge benefit in terms of their operations and avoiding penalties under the law and so forth. Great. That's interesting. Um, before I let you go today, uh, can you tell us about some of the sources that you found when you were doing work at the Hagley? Oh, sure. Uh, the Hagley was absolutely critical. I, I certainly have spent at least a few years of my lives, I think, down in, uh, down in uh, the, the archives and in the library. Uh, the Pennsylvania Railroad Collection uh, was very critical for my research. And one of the really nice things about the Pennsylvania Railroad Collection is that as the railroad expanded in the 19th century, and acquired other rail lines uh, in the East Coast and in the Midwest, they assumed all their corporate records. And so you have not only just the Pennsylvania Railroad collection, but you have collections for the uh, Camden and Amboy Railroad and the Central Railroad in New Jersey and a number of other really important railroads uh, from the early time period that are preserved within the, within the broader umbrella of the Pennsylvania Railroad collection. So that was absolutely, you know, I, I could not have done this project without access to that collection. So that was really important. Uh, the trade journals collection also certainly in the library was very important. Um, I looked, spent many months looking through um, a number of the journals like the Railroad Gazette, and for instance, um, very important in order to you know, find a lot of this information that I needed in order to sort of trace, trace the industry's growing interest in the telegraph and, and you know, how that played out. So I would say, yeah, the Hagley collections were, were really fundamental. Definitely could not have done this project without, without them. Great. So final question, uh, sort of twofer, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, first half is, is there anything that I didn't ask you about today that you really, really wanted to talk about? <laughs> and relatedly, uh, for anyone who now goes out and decides to read this book and who has watched this interview, uh, what would you like their final takeaway to be about about your work? Uh, great questions. Uh, let me think. Anything that we haven't haven't touched on? Um, I think I just I think the importance of really understanding the kind of the big picture and not just focusing narrowly on you know economic causality or not focusing very narrowly on you know social causality. One of the things I realized as I did this project was just how how important these various factors, uh, legal factors being especially important in terms of shaping attitudes of railroads toward, uh, toward the telegraph, um, this concept of ultra virus, which is very fundamental to contracts law and the idea that corporations could be chartered to do one thing and one thing only. They couldn't dabble in other areas. And if they did, they ran the risk of um, their investors potentially suing them or if it was a state charter potentially voiding their charter and the company would, would cease to exist. And so this is one of these many factors that limits railroad officials' willingness to, um, to deal with the telegraph because they're afraid of being accused of doing business in an area that they weren't chartered to do business in. And this really remains a factor until the late 1870s uh, when an amendment, a federal amendment is passed um, to, um, to, a spend, to a spending bill uh, that actually essentially explicitly allows railroad companies to use the telegraph uh, in their operation and essentially says this, this legal doctrine is no longer relevant to the rail industry. And so to me, that was a really important point because I just, you know, it, it helped me better understand some of the reasons why you have these railroad officials. It's not just that they're, you know, a bunch of old super conservative, um, you know, white men who are unwilling to engage with new ideas, 
there are very profound reasons they don't want to put their companies at risk. And one of these risks could be that the potential for being sued by their investors or having their, their corporate charters voided by the state. If some member of the legislature got angry and decided that they were engaging in some sort of business activity that they weren't supposed to be engaging in. Uh, so to me, that was a very important takeaway is these broader, uh, making sure you, you, you appreciate the broader picture when you're studying this sort of you know, causality and understanding and change, you know, these important changes over time. Um, as far as the second question, I would, I would hope, well, I guess maybe in some ways related, I would hope that somebody you know, reading the book would sort of take away the point that, that this is not a simple story, that this is, a, this is a complicated story. And so it's understandable why previous generations of historians didn't quite figure this, these connections out or had sort of mistaken ideas about them. I mean, the title of the book is very explicitly is a revisionist history. And so I am really trying to revise you know, what the ideas that sort of previous generations of historians had about the relationship between these two industries. So I think somebody reading this book, I would hope they would take away this notion that yes, we are really trying to create a new kind of synthesis of you know, this story by drawing all these you know, diverse sources, not just looking at it from purely a management standpoint or an economic standpoint, but really bringing in a lot of other sources to try to better understand and you know, the complexity of this, of this relationship. And I think you can also then say, can, we can apply many of these same ideas to looking at other kinds of relationships uh, in, the modern, in the modern era. I mean, my interest is very much in communications and corporate activities. And so looking at other areas, like for instance, you know, in the modern period, like fax machines or email or anything like this, trying to understand how these, these corporate, these means of communication impact businesses and very rarely is it just one you know specific factor that influences that relationship it's oftentimes a multitude of factors um, that does so so i think anyone you know reading this book hopefully they're taking away this idea that you know complexity is definitely something you have to recognize when you're dealing with these technical and these these kind of corporate business relationships and understanding their their impact all right well thank you for sitting down and talking with us today for this episode of Hagley history hangout well, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed chatting about the book. All right. And that book is, again, The Train and the Telegraph, A Revisionist History. I recommend checking out. I, of course, read it to prepare for this interview. And if you liked what you've watched or heard, uh, go ahead and subscribe to our feeds and let us know what you thought about it in the comments. Until next time, signing off. <laughs>